0: Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome to another episode of Archeo Cafe. I'm Otis, and today I'm talking with Morten Kutscherer from Bergen, Norway. Morten is an honorary research fellow at Exeter University. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Otis. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about what you do?
1: Yeah, well, um, I'm um, an experimental archaeologist and a professional knapper, uh, maker of stone tools. Um, I make a living making museum replicas. That means like functional uh, replicas of uh, stone age tools and maybe from other time periods as well. And um, I do demonstrations of these techniques, and uh, I basically work for uh, museums, and uh, I use the same skill set for a lot of things, really, from academic archaeology to reenactment. It's just, uh, yeah, various ways of using the same skill set, really.
0: You are a napper. Can you tell our listeners, because they might not be archaeologists, briefly, what is napping?
1: Well, flint is, um, it's the oldest craft in the world, pretty much. It's, um, it's a way of transforming, um, uh, flint and all our, uh, other, other, uh, silicate, um, uh, rocks into sharp tools. So basically you can use all kinds of tools like a hammer stone or a piece of antler, or you can use advanced techniques with a hammer and a chisel. And uh, even copper to transform the flint into um, various types of tools from different time periods. It's uh I mean it's something that's been going on for two and a half million years all over the world. So it's um there are so many different ways of doing this. But the basic thing is that um you hit these glass-like rocks. In a way that makes them break in a very controlled way, and you can create some of the sharpest edges uh, known to man, really. As, especially if you're using obsidian, for example. But uh, you you get really sharp edges without having to grind them sharp. So, and and you can make all the kinds of tools that we use today, like uh, knives. And I mean, some people use arrowheads even today, and. You can use uh, four kinds of uh, wood carving and bone carving tools and scrapers and pretty much anything that people needed of uh, edge tools or pointy tools that were made from flint instead of steel like we do today.
0: What are some of the reasons that people learn this skill today?
1: Well, you have different uh, traditions really because um, You have a very big divide uh, between the American tradition and the European tradition. The European tradition of flintknapping is uh, something that may be dominated by France and Denmark where you have um, archaeologists mostly or people with some sort of archaeological background doing the flintknapping for experimental purposes. The point here is to figure out like how did they actually make the tools in prehistory and how did they use them. So basically it's a matter of, uh, in a controlled environment, trying to really replicate the steps of the production and to make useful tools and see what they can be used for. And you can, um, you can uh, apply use for analysis where you study these things under a microscope to see if you can develop the same patterns by using different materials. And so it's a very scientific tradition in Europe, really. And most of the professional flint apples that you find, um, Today in Europe, they have some sort of archaeological connection. I would say that most of them are archaeologists. And all uh, working with and for archaeologists. So it's, it's a very scientific tradition in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Europe. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not like that in the US, because part of the tradition in the US, you have some of the best flint mappers, uh, experimental flint mappers, like, um, uh, so you have a tradition for that as well in the US, but most of the people working with flint mapping, they are, uh, they come maybe from the environment of the arrowhead collectors. The people who f- from childhood, they go out and they, uh, they look for, uh, for uh, little uh, arrow points and uh, atlatl points and uh, they collect them and put them into frames and they like colors and shapes and I think that uh, part of the tradition there is that uh, uh, you have part of scientific tradition, but you also have like more of a collector's tradition in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and you have thousands of people doing it, whereas very few people really do it in, in, in
0: Europe. Right. The ones that are doing it in America is to produce replicas for, for collections or for display purposes.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's that's more widespread in in the Americas, really.
0: Um, is it common among kidnappers to use them in everyday activities, or is it more just to produce them?
1: I, I think that in uh, in America, it's more about producing them, really, because they also use uh, mostly heat treated rock. So it's all about the colors and, uh, and the appearance of the tools, rather than maybe the use of it. I mean, but you have also like a really good tradition for, for experimental archaeology in America, but not all of them are doing that. A lot of them are interested in, in the art of it, like more like the, the art and the beauty of flint mapping. Maybe that's like the more correct way of saying it. Like they're, they're really interested in how to make this into like perfection.
0: Oh, uh, okay. So it's it's something of a, a hobby or an art that people there are doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would say that. Yeah.
0: I've seen a lot of announcements in, particularly in the United States, for uh, nap-ins, where people will come together and just nap, like a large group of them. I think sometimes expert ones will maybe demonstrate to some of the beginners, or they might exchange materials or talk about things. I think it's a a social gathering, and the main activity at this social gathering is napping. I've seen a lot of announcements for that in the United States. I don't see too many of them in Europe. Sometimes I see ones for public demonstrations on how it was, so more of like a living history sort of event. How and when did you initially become interested in napping?
1: Well, for me, it started with my first archaeological uh, excavation as a student. So that, I think it was back in 1990 in um, just outside of Bergen. And um, uh, I just started uh, studying archaeology and uh, there weren't too many uh, archaeologists or students back then. So even after a few months, the first summer, you could get professional paid fieldwork and uh, my first excavation was a stone age excavation and luckily for me there was a canadian archaeologist who was uh, the leader of this excavation uh, david simpson and uh, i mean he wasn't a brilliant mapper, but uh, he knew technology he was like a lithic expert and he was so good at it and and he was doing refitting and uh, This site here, it had a lot of raw materials uh, used like rhyolite and quartz and flint and slate and a wide variety of uh, raw materials and uh, you had a lot of refitted sequences and uh, he was able to explain the technology in such a good and interesting way. So I was totally captivated. I didn't really start with archaeology to study the stone age but from that moment I, I knew that this was going to be my path. And, um, I learned a little by watching him, but as I said, he wasn't like a great flintnapper. But both of us, we saw this, um, poster at, uh, the university later. Um, there was a guy in Denmark, Aspen Carnegie Nielsen, who was one of these, like, um, I wouldn't say the first generation, but the second generation flintnappers. Who learned, who learned from, actually I knew, uh, François Borde and all these guys, like the old guys, and he was giving um, a little course in Denmark. So we went to Denmark the same uh, winter in, um, I think it was a place called uh, Greno, at the museum where he was uh, employed and uh, we were there for a few days and we learned the very basics of um flint napping. I mean mainly we, we were actually watching him do it so we didn't really get our hands dirty in that way but uh, it was enough for me to to trigger the interest and to start trying on my own. And then later I got involved in the Leire environment in 1993 and uh, from then on I realized that I could just go to Denmark and pick the flint myself which I did and And then the rest is history. Then I started really like doing properly mapping.
0: At the beginning, how many hours of practice per day or per week do you think you were doing?
1: I think that in the beginning it was very much on and off because I didn't have a lot of material to use. So we were a little group at the university who uh, gathered and uh, we did a little bit of uh, Flint napping. There was this um, visiting scholar from, um, from England, Roger Grace, who was into news for analysis and um, so at times we would do a little bit of flint napping every day and, uh, but not, not like that much and we weren't like really that professional. but uh, um, in Bergen back in, in the early 90s, we had a little uh, group of people doing experimental archaeology and we were very enthusiastic about it. But maybe not that professional. <laughs> so, uh, but then it was on and off, and uh, I, I think that actually um, um, until the late nineties, it was just an on and off thing for me. I, I did it like uh, mostly to to understand the uh, the material I was working with. I mean, I, I was um, I was a field archaeologist uh, next to my studies and. Uh, I went through like hundreds of thousands of finds and uh, I needed to understand how everything was made. So so for me it was uh, not really about replication but about understanding uh, lithic technologies. I didn't think of myself as a flint knapper back then. It was more about uh, understanding the the tools and the
0: production of them. So at that time were you using local material or material that looked similar to the artifacts or were you using material in general, for example, going to Denmark to get material?
1: Well, a a little of everything, because we have some local material in Norway and we can find some flint on the beaches, and uh, I was lucky to find a source of uh, rhyolite uh, that wasn't a prehistoric quarry, so, and of course I went to Denmark, so it was a little mix of everything. I I think that uh, but it, it was a little bit random in the beginning, whatever I came across. But but I, I, I didn't really uh, have any heaps of raw material, it was just um, whatever I could get my hands on.
0: How long do you think it would take for someone to become skilled enough to accurately replicate prehistoric stone tools?
1: Well, there are many different levels of uh, making stone tools. Like Some industries are very simple to make. If you're going to, for example, make late upper paleolithic uh, tools um, from, from blades and making arrowheads and all these other tools, it's something you can easily make. So uh, usually I say that uh, it's something that takes from two days uh, of really two days of hard practice. You can actually learn the, the basics and you can make real tools. But of course it takes a lifetime to make the really advanced things. But most ornate people were not professional um, It was just part of a skill set that they needed and uh, uh, they made what they needed when they needed it and, and uh, you see many levels in, in the archaeological material from any given time period. So I would say that like actually you can do the basics in, uh, in two days but of course you need a little bit of more practice and you need a lot of raw material to really become good.
0: In that two days what types of technologies do you think someone could learn to replicate?
1: I I mean, basically in in two days uh, you would have to focus on the very simple things like uh, direct and indirect percussion blades. Um, I would say that uh, the easiest technique to master properly is indirect percussion blades where you use uh, an antler punch and some sort of... Mm -hmm. Um, hammer, either wood or or antler, and you you hit it, and uh, like with a hammer and a chisel, and you take off the blades. It's very controlled. Uh, you can get a good sequence, and um, you get a lot of um, preforms that you can use for making tools. So so basically, two or three days, you can actually you, you can learn a lot of the simple things. But of course, to make like a flint, uh, pressure flaked uh, or bifacially worked uh, point or dagger even and stuff like that, it's actually, it takes weeks, months, maybe years to develop the skills. And people have different um, abilities when it comes to flint mapping. I mean, if you're good at working with your hands, it's easier for, it's a lot easier. If you have more than three thumbs, then you will struggle with flint mapping as well.
0: So it- It'll partly come down to the person, uh, yeah. partly partly it comes down to the hours you put into it.
1: Yeah, and I think that, uh, of course, um, for me, myself, I was mostly struggling on my own. I, I learned from the prehistoric material. I studied it and, and then I decided to see if I can replicate it. This was before the time of um, Facebook and YouTube and all these things. so. You had to learn from from books, and you had to learn from um, from uh, just observing the archaeological record and uh, and try to to replicate it. So I mean that I I learned it the hard way and on my own in solitude. And uh, uh, I wish that I had learned it in a different way, the the way people can learn it today. That you have someone that you can teach it to you. I mean you can you can observe YouTube and everything, but if you have a good instructor. Uh, then, then, you can actually learn flint quickly. So, so that's um, that would be my suggestion. If you really want to learn flint knapping, it's better to learn it from someone who uh, who's a good teacher and can explain in a, in an easy way how to to actually go about it.
0: One of your main interests has been early Mesolithic and late Upper Paleolithic industries of northwestern Europe what defines this period and region
1: well um, the late upper paleolithic and, and uh, the early mesolithic is um, it's uh, exactly at at the time when um, the ice age is uh, <laughs> um, it's it's when the ice age is, uh, is over or at least starting to become over and, and um it's when you see um uh, Northern Europe uh, is populated for the first uh, time at least the first time that we know about and um, people try to um, probably partly follow the reindeer and um, and try to live in um, in a traditional way but they, you also see that how coastal resources become important maybe they were important before also but we can't find the coastlines from from that time period but um it's it's when um you see that suddenly uh, in in a few hundred years the uh, all of Scandinavia it, it kind of explodes with stone age finds and uh, you can see how um we can call them the pioneers they often call them the pioneers the pioneer settlement how they populate this new land and they spread with lightning speed and uh, from from um in Norway, you can see that the Northern Norway and Southern Norway, there, there's no real difference between uh, when it was populated. It just happened like that. And we're talking about the distance, like from Oslo and up to uh, northern most parts of Norway. It's just as far as it is from Oslo to DC in Italy. So it's like quite the distance and they, they spread really fast and uh, to this coastal environment and, uh, and also the main interest in this is because this these are among the first sites that I um I was studying. For some reason I always ended up excavating these later Papaleolithic early Mesolithic sites. I could apply for anything when fieldwork was handed out, but I would always end up as a field leader on one of these later Papaleolithic or early Mesolithic sites. Just anywhere in in, in Norway, so I, I guess that I, I was just meant to work with this time period.
0: How would northwestern Europe have been different during the upper Paleolithic or early Mesolithic compared to today?
1: Well, the environment changed uh, quickly. So even though this is like a relatively short uh, time span, you can see how at the end of the ice age it goes from uh, being a very open and barren landscape. Probably flint was a lot easier to find because you can find flint on the beaches still today. But with grass and... uh, and trees and, um, vegetation today is, is much harder to find. But in this open landscape, they probably could find a lot of lint. but it goes from, uh, what you would define as like a barren tundra landscape. And quickly after the ice age, maybe like 500 years into, to the early Mesolithic, you would see that you get a climate that is very much like what we have today. So, um, and it's a it's a time of rapid changes. I mean, it's funny because the whole society kind of collapses. It's it's something where you have to make a choice. And, and uh, it seems like some people they stay put in Europe and adapted to the new environment, and whereas some people would just follow uh, the old ways and go as far north as as possible. So. Um, but it's it's a time period of rapid change and it's uh, you can see how it quickly develops into a forest environment and where you see uh, also rapid changes in technology from time points to lancet microliths and um, and also you can see how um um i mean in uh, in later periods you see local traditions much more but in this time period you can see that the the, the technology is similar over huge areas, like all of Scandinavia and northern Germany, is like this. The same technology. We call it different things, but it's actually the same in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, northern Germany, and. Um, and we can also see that, like when the changes come, it changes really quickly as well. So maybe it was like a little population, and uh, they travelled far, and they had um, they were very mobile, and um, and probably they needed contact with other groups in order to sustain, sustain uh, uh, a population.
0: What was distinct about the stone tools of this period?
1: Well, pretty much all of the stone tools are, uh, um, are made out of uh, blades. So they had this way of making uh, blade cores, and um, so they, w- they would use speech flint, and uh, they w- weren't quarrying flint, so they were using whatever flint was available. Of course, conditions were worse in Norway than it was in Denmark and they would make the, what we call the um, soft percussion or direct percussion cores uh, sometimes hard percussion with a, the with a hammerstone but they were always using direct percussion and um, so they made these platforms often two platforms and like opposed platforms and they would hit it uh, with the hammerstone or with the with the antler billet and they would strike off these thin and fairly uh, uh, standardized uh, blades uh, the bigger blades they would use for I mean everything from knives to transforming them into burins, uh, that's like tools for working bone, antler, even wood maybe. And uh, they could make scrapers and um and all sorts of tools for them. So basically they had these blades that they can turn into just about any kind of tool that was smaller than an axe. And of course uh, the bust they would use for arrowheads. And that's the classical time point uh, that we refer to as the Arnsbergian points. Or in Norway, you would call them Fosna points, and in Sweden, uh, you would call them Hansbacka. But it's the same thing. It's like it's a little point with a stem that goes into um, that goes into the arrow shaft, and it has like a ridiculously sharp edge. It's made in uh, on an anvil in uh, thirty seconds maximum. I mean, 20-30 seconds and you have an arrowhead that is just as good as something that you will spend 20 minutes making. So it's a very pragmatic, quick way of uh, doing flint mapping, a bit wasteful of course. And um, and it is, in addition you have something that is a very specific tool that is called a flake axe. And those are the oldest stone axes that we know about in uh, in Northern Europe at least. And they are made in a very specific uh, way, from a big flake and uh, that was actually one of the first things I learned to make. So I I really love these flake axes because it's it's a whole napping exercise in itself to make this flake axe. You can only make it the right way if you go wrong somewhere uh, in the operation chain of making it. You will not be able to make the flake axe, so it's important that you follow the right steps. It's a very simple tool; it takes five minutes to make, and uh, but but it's such a beautiful, sharp little axe, and it's so brilliantly made, and uh, and that's one of the things that I I I learned in Denmark in in nineteen ninety in in the winter. So so this is kind of that's also part of why I love this industry because. uh, I feel that somehow these axes, they kind of represent me, but, uh, but th- those are very typical. You find lots of these axes and they're super sharp. They were never sharpened. They were just, you just make them and then they are sharp and you can resharpen them by, not by grinding, but you can actually hit, uh, across the edge and you can make another edge until it doesn't fit into the haft anymore.
0: The material that they were using, do you think it was usually local or do you think they were importing it?
1: No, back in, in those days they were uh, using the local flint. Pretty sure of it.
0: Was a lot of it stuff that the glaciers had dropped as they retreated?
1: I mean, th- that's one possibility, of course. But uh, I, I think the, um, the general uh, idea is that uh, you can find it on the beaches because um, in the same way as in November, December, um, when, um, when you start to get like frost on the ponds and stuff and if you step on the ponds and you turn the ice you will see little pieces of um, like small pebbles that will be sticking out of the ice attached to it. And if you turn this into like a, a bigger thing you can see icebergs and uh, ice flakes drifting off maybe from flint rich areas and to the coast of Norway and Western Sweden, and when they melt down, the flint will be on the ocean floor. And when uh, the land rose after the ice age, when when the ice cap disappeared, then you had a land rise, and uh, eventually more and more will be visible on the beaches. So I think that's the general thing, that uh, they think it was carried by ocean currents and uh, uh ice uh, icebergs and ice flakes maybe
0: oh, I see that's an interesting idea there have some people did sourcing studies to see where these beach pebbles or the things that you find today on the beach where did they come from
1: well uh, I think it's um it's very hard sometimes to see the difference between difference between the different types of lint. And, uh, but you can see that it's mainly the same type of flint as you find in uh, in parts of uh, Denmark and um, and uh, and England. Um, so so um, but but you find a wide variety of uh, flint pieces uh, from the glass-like Sononian flint to this very grey and opaque and coarse-grained um, uh, Danian flint. So, uh, but but it's really hard to determine exactly what kind of sources you have.
0: But there's no local
1: sources? No, you don't have... um, In in Norway, for example, we don't have the chalk layers. Um, I mean, they might have been there, but uh, after the Ice Age, or many Ice Ages, um, Norway was eroded down to the bedrock. So... um, so, uh, any deposits from that time period, if, if we even had chalk deposits, that would be long gone. So, it's hard to determine whether, it like, I mean, there's a chance that the flint was actually uh, from eroded uh, local uh, chalk deposits, I mean, you never know. But uh, most likely it's actually transported from the chalk rich areas in the North Sea yeah? and, uh, I mean, Back, back towards the end of the Ice Age, uh, you could walk from, uh, from southern Sweden uh, across Denmark and the North Sea to England and you would be dry on your feet. So, and all of this entire landscape of the North European plain is rich in flint. So it could easily be coming from this area somehow. There's another possibility. There was this, uh, uh, no not archaeologist, there was this geologist who suggested that we might have had those chalk layers and that they were just eroded. Yeah, so so that's kind of like the the other option.
0: What are some of the other technologies and time periods which interest you now?
1: Well, in the beginning I was very single-minded on these uh, early Mesolithic technologies and maybe middle Mesolithic and uh, very much on the blade technology. And um but eventually I was asked to make other things. And um, so I started experimenting of course with the with the next thing that would be the, the bifacial technique, the, the pressure flaking of arrowheads like in the late Neolithic, early Bronze Age, and uh, making bifacial tools like flint daggers and spearheads and stuff. But um, in later years, more recent, like within the last ten years. I started uh, becoming more and more interested in, um, uh, let's say, more general techniques. And uh, there was this speci- there, there was this special occasion that led to me being more interested in um, in the older stuff. So so at the moment I'm actually working a lot with lower and middle paleolithic stuff. And it has to do with... Um, there was actually a nap-in in Leire in Denmark, but it was more like a specialist nap-in where people from um, different regions or all over the world come together, but mostly professional kidnappers or locals. Um, And um, that's where I met the people from the University of Exeter. So Linda and um, she had uh, several students uh, with her, some of which are my really good friends today. And one of them is... uh, um, an Italian girl, Alicia, um, Alicia La Porta, and she's um, a specialist in, um, in the Middle Paleolithic, and she needed a apparatus to make a lot of levalois points um, and uh, kind of like the spearheads that we think that the Neanderthals will be using so it's uh, the mysterian tech, uh, technology and that's something i never tried before but um i started uh, working on this technology and and what i realized is that it was so counterintuitive i mean i just couldn't wrap my head around it in the beginning like how were they doing this because normally when you're making tools you're trimming forward like when you're making blade tools but here you were trimming backwards and you would make this little cap on which you hit. and um, a uh, totally different uh, technology and you spend this time building up this core for a long time just to make one removal that is supposed to be the spearhead and of course like most of the things that can go wrong go wrong. I mean the Burfi's law is really really big when it comes to level wire technique. And, um, but eventually I got the hang of it and that kind of uh, inspired me to uh, to try to figure out uh, more uh, technologies. And um, the later thing uh, I've been interested in is is what some people would call hand axes. They're not really hand axes. They're more of like simple bifaces from from the lower and middle Paleolithic. And um, I've been going around to different collections in museums and private collections and trying to figure out like, how were these things really made? I mean, because something I sometimes notice with archaeological replication is that people make something that looks a lot like the original, but it's something made out of a picture in the book. It's not really meant to have the same function or it's, it's not really following the steps. You end up with a, with an end product that with the first glance look like the real tool, but it's not really. So, so for me, it's like, um, I really go to the source when I try to replicate something. And it's, it's very time consuming, <laughs> but, but I really love this. And so at the moment, I'm very focused on, on these um, early technologies. And what I notice about them is that they are not simple at all. You, you think of something like a hand axe that is something that even a child can do. It's so simple and it has to be primitive people doing it, but it's not really like that. They're, they're really advanced and it, it takes a lot of skills to do it right.
0: Are you working with ground stone or with other non-stone technologies as well?
1: Well, um I mean, in, in Norway, uh, we don't have a lot of, uh flint, so, uh axes and, um heavy tools had to be made from other raw materials. So, um, in Norway is actually one of the places yeah, where you find really early, um, ground and uh, packed, uh, axes. So yeah, that, that's part of uh, what I do. I, 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 m- I make a lot of, uh, stone axes of diabase and basalt and these kind of things. And it, it kind of naps in the same way as flint, but it's a much harder and heavier, not really harder, but it's, it's a heavier material. To uh, to to nap, you really have to use your your force, and uh, um, you have to think a little differently. But uh, but uh, mainly, it works in the same way. You can you can uh, you can break it in the same way. But uh, it always takes a finish of grinding or packing to to get it perfect, because you can't really nap it in 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 the beautiful way that you can nap flint, if that makes sense. It's a coarse-grained material.
0: So you were telling us a bit about your process there. Before trying to recreate something that you haven't recreated before, what do you try to learn from the archaeological literature or from viewing artifacts? and How do you incorporate that into your investigations?
1: Well, um, so what I do normally is that um, I I will start with... um, Literature studies, of course, um, uh, and uh, I will uh, go to um, uh, the museums. I'm lucky in that sense because I pretty much have access to any museum I'd like, so um, I, I will probably... Uh, I have a lot of contacts in the museums, especially in Norway, but also in, in Denmark and, and uh, just about uh, anywhere. It's easy to get access to the material, uh, at least like now it is, and um, so basically I sit down and I study the material, and uh, I could sit for days and I just uh, try to figure out how it's made, and then afterwards I will go to uh, I will go and practice. I will try to I uh, will try to uh, follow the steps that I think are there or like that other people have described and I will try to follow um, or what I mean is like I will try to get the same result. I want it to look the way that uh, it looks. I want it to be sharp in the right places. I, I want to uh, to uh, I often look at the, the the waste material also if it's available so so it's um, it takes a lot of studies of, of the actual material, and then I go and I and I practice, and then I go back to the material again to see if I was kind of doing it right and if I was understanding the process. And of course, sometimes you have to go back and forth and back and forth. And uh, and uh, but I really love handling the material, and um, and uh, I I spent a large portion of my life just looking at artifacts, so that's, uh, and I, I think that also like uh, in my heart and in my core, it, it's, um, I'm first and foremost always the the archaeologist, the, the lithics experts, it's, uh, the, that's the driving force of everything, is, uh, this is not something I, I do to to make just beautiful things, it's. It's something that uh, I always like to try to understand uh, the, the technology. And and when I make things, I, I want to do it right. I want to do it like in the right way. Whether it comes to stone or bone or whatever I try to make. Or even wooden artifacts. It's I, I always try to understand the way it was made. I'm not happy if I can't see all the details. I had some projects where it was impossible to... Uh, to to get the details. I had this episode with the British Museum. They just don't answer emails if you're not the famous person. <coughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> so so um so basically like when you have a question and you know they can answer the question, they just don't bother to do it. I hate these kind of situations where you have to guess. And I think that like uh, I'm pretty good at qualified guesses. Because I've been working with a lot of uh, flint, bone, antler, different techniques and stuff. But I, when I know that somebody's got the answers, I just hate to make a guess.
0: <laughs> so you're not just looking at the end product; you're also looking at the waste material produced.
1: Yeah, I think the, the waste material uh, is uh, the waste material is often um, in, in many cases. Uh, um, more important. And also the discards. Sometimes you're lucky like that you can find, uh, for example, uh, a friend, he gave me this uh, amazing thing. Uh, he, he gave me a lot of stuff for my, I, I'm not really a collector of uh, flint tools, but I have a bit of a reference collection. And uh, he gave me this um, unsuccessful levalois core, like a preferential core, like not the the, the points, but the, the big Lavaroa flake core. And it's built up perfectly, but then they messed up the platform. And then they tried to take it from the other platform and there was an inclusion. So basically this thing is like perfectly built up, but the, the flake was never released. So when you have stuff like that, you can actually see uh, the planning, the process, so basically, the discards and and um, and uh, the waste material sometimes gives you better hints than, or equally good as, as the finished artifacts. It's the totality of things because you can't really follow the steps always if you only have the artifacts. You need more than that.
0: Well, I guess that looking at the garbage is really useful because when you get just the end product you see just one stage, the very end part. But looking at the garbage, you can see what did they take off first? What did you start with? And what was the possible strategy for removing the little pieces until you came to the end product?
1: Yeah, Yes. Um, I mean, flintnapping is that... Um... The, the, the beauty of it is that uh, in any traditional society, uh, or in any society, you have sort of a cultural concept about what things are supposed to look like. And, um, and uh, that's really good for flintnapping, because uh, each tradition has its own way of doing things. And uh, basically, the way they learned this is to follow steps. But of course the flint is tricky because it doesn't come in standardized sizes in that sense it's um it will come in nodules uh, that sometimes they're round sometimes they're like oddly shaped like amoebas or they could be tabular flint and uh, so there are a lot of challenges with each and every piece there might be an inclusion of chalk or even a fossil or a frost crack or something like that inside it and um, so so basically like flint napping it's a bit like um game of chess it's like you have to follow a strategy but you have an opponent <laughs> and uh, and the flint is sometimes working against you and sometimes it's really clean and nice and uh, and you would want the same end product regardless of uh, the starting point if that makes sense and um so so it's it's a bit like uh, um, the artifacts that you are making in a specific tradition, they're always culturally d- determined. That's why you have a type that is a specific type. And when you find this type and you can see that it's not just, it doesn't just look like this type, but it's made in the same way, then you can, um, you can uh, say with certainty that this is this and that time period. If you have another site that has been radiocarbon dated or So, uh, it's it's all about like following the steps of the of the the production.
0: When you're trying to recreate something new, something you haven't done before, do you usually have to go back a lot of times to look at the originals or do you sometimes get it on the first or second try?
1: It depends a lot on the complexity of things really. I noticed that with bone tools, for example it's a lot easier to just um, figure out how things were made it's only thinking three dimensional in a way and removing material but with flint mapping it might just be a little bit more tricky so um sometimes it's pretty easy. I remember there was once this um there was a guy from Turkey he contacted me and he wanted something um Called a Namrik point, and um, it's from a time period in the Neolithic of the Levant or the Middle East that is um, before uh, pottery, so it's called pre-pottery Neolithic, PPNA and B. And um, it wasn't so easy for me to go to to Turkey to study these things, but uh, I had a lot of contacts in um, in uh, in uh, Israel and. Um, they have much the same tradition, they maybe call it something else, but it's the same tradition, so I contacted uh, some contacts and the contacts of the contacts, so the contacts eventually led me to the right person and I got to sit there for a couple of days and just study this material and uh, in a way, it reminded me a lot about um it was a blade technology, so basically they were making these like really really uh, nice and um and triangular cross-section blades um, uh, that could be tr- transformed into, among other things, arrowheads like these number points, and and uh, so basically, uh, since uh, it reminded me of uh, Scandinavian industries, of course it was different, but it still had um, aspects of the blade technology and and uh, and the arrowhead shape that made it possible to 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 replicate so so there uh, from looking at it a couple of days I could go home to Norway and I could produce a number of these points that this guy would do some uh, some uh, he would actually shoot them and uh, doing impact uh, analysis on them and, and I still to 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 this day I can sit down and I can make these points just from memory.
0: What has been one of your favorite things to recreate?
1: Oh, yeah. uh, well, I have some things that, uh, uh, I wouldn't say that's just one, but I have like a few that I really, really love, and um, of course, like the flake eggs is kind of, it defines me, and if you look in Wikipedia on flake eggs, you'll actually see that it's not really a picture of a real flake X, but it's one that I made,
0: <laughs> and uh,
1: <laughs> for some odd reason, or it used to be anyway. <laughs>
0: We'll put a link in the episode notes so that people can see that one.
1: Oh, yeah, well, we'll have to check if it's actually true uh, these days. Uh, it might have changed though. But, um, no, the flake is obviously, it's, it's one of my favorites and, and, um, and also the, the tangent points, uh, these, uh, Arnsbergian points. I really love making those, but I have another favorite and that's, um, uh, from, from this, um, Um, The copper age, in uh, the Alpine region, you have a few daggers. One is the one that uh, was found with um, the Iceman, Ötzi. He had a little uh, dagger with, uh, I wouldn't say it's the most impressive dagger and the handle is certainly not very impressive. But you have a lot of these dagger blades found in the whole region. And they are very often made from uh, this um, flint from uh, northern parts of Italy. And um, in one of these uh, settlement sites, in uh, one of these Falbo uh, or Pile Dwelling um, sites in in Germany, they have this. Uh, it's called Allensbach. This place, and you have this Allensbach dolch or this Allensbach uh, dagger, and. Um, This uh, is—it's an amazing uh, dagger because it's—it's a a beautiful version of the flint blade that you can find in Otzi's knife. It's a little bit longer; it's like about nine centimeters uh, sticking out of the handle, and the handle is made from um, from uh, alderberry tree. And I just love the combination there because it's so smart. This, uh, because you don't find flint in the same size as you do in Scandinavia, where you have the the big flint daggers. But here you have to combine the handle and uh, and the flint to make the whole tool. And and the handle is made from a a wood that already is hollow in the middle. And um, it's rather soft and it uh, cracks easily until it's dry. And when it's dry, it's like almost like a hardwood, and and it feels really, really good to work. And you can shave it into a nice handle. And you don't really have to drill or open up too much to insert the knife uh, blade. You just have to like widen the already existing um, uh, handle and then insert the blade. And I think this this uh, this uh, this little dagger here is uh, it's just one of the most beautiful and practical tools uh, ever. And and it makes so much sense when you see the whole parts, and 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 when you realize, like, why they were using this wood in particular for making the handle. So it's, it's kind of like when all the pieces fall together, and it's been also glued with uh, birch bark uh, pitch, like the, the 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 tar that is made from birch bark inside this handle to make it stick properly. So so that's that's probably my favorite at the moment. I really love those.
0: Have you seen there was a movie, uh, I think in 2017, about the life of Utzi. It's fictional, but it's it sort of leads up, and at the end of the film, he ends up on the glacier, as he was found in 1991. Have you seen this movie?
1: Well, I stopped it on it once, but uh, the quality was so bad on the one that I saw that I, um, I never finished it. But... Um... Uh, from how the story has been described, of course it's fictional and, and I always pictured it to be in a different way. So, right. <laughs> I always had my own theory about, it, theory about how he ended up there. But
0: um... I thought it was really good the of the recreations that they did for it. Prior to the end of the movie, throughout it you can see the different items that he has, which we know from the find that he did have with him when he died, but they show him throughout the movie some of the different items, uh, show him using them or producing them. So it was kind of interesting for the recreation side of it.
1: No, I would love to see it. And definitely now when you describe it in that way, I'm, I'm more eager to see it than ever. So thank you.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure who did the recreations for it, but they might have had a team doing it because they had quite a few things there. It wasn't just small objects. They had built houses of different styles. There was a lot of items that must have been produced for the movie. And in it, the actors are actually speaking some form of Raetian, which is, it's an extinct language now. But I think it's, if I recall, it was still in use when the Romans entered this Alpine area north of Italy. And I think it's related It's in the same group as Etruscan, but it's not spoken today. The archaeologists know about it from inscriptions that were written when it was still in use. So in the film, all of the characters are speaking some reconstructive form of this language. It was really interesting from that point of view.
1: Amazing. Well, I I really have to see this movie now.
0: (laughs) Anyone that's interested in that time period, it's a really good movie to watch just for the... I, we could say even education about it. I mean, it's it's a fictional account. We don't know what happened to him prior to ending up on the glacier. But it's a speculation about how he got some of his wounds and, and things like that.
1: But I think that uh, it's... it's uh, even if it's fictional, it's, it's also like a... It's a good explanation anyway, so yeah.
0: I like that these type of movies are made because i think they can help to generate an interest in history and even though it's a fictional story the people that have created it have tried to work in what we do know about the time period and but i like them for that reason especially now because we get a lot of this pseudoscience that it's presented to the public as documentaries as real information so this is a really good way to sort of, I think, encourage an interest in history or prehistory, archaeology.
1: Oh, I agree with you there. You're thinking about like series like the Vikings and stuff like that, right? Like this crazy series that is like biker Vikings.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's those, but also some like ancient aliens oh. and things like this.
1: Yeah, that's a lot of craziness a. <laughs>
0: at least with series like these reenactment series, like Vikings, there's some historical aspect to it and they're not presenting it saying this is a documentary, (laughs) but there's other ones, which they are presenting as documentaries, which clearly a historian, a legitimate historian would not agree with some of the stuff they present. Yep.
1: (laughs) There are different levels. Yeah.
0: Well, I think this is a good point to take a break, and then we'll come back shortly. So for our listeners, go refill your cup of coffee, grab a snack, and hurry back for part two of our interview with Morton Kutcheron. You've been listening to the Archeo Cafe podcast. For more episodes and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes, or simply by searching online for Archeo Cafe podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. And remember, no matter how deep you bury the bodies, someone will eventually dig them up.